Hey everybody, welcome to season two of the Mixmasters podcast. I'm your host, Steve Litcher, and for those not familiar, I'm the touring front of house engineer for Stitched Up Heart. Working with Stitched Up Heart has led me to meet an incredible number of really talented people, and I wanted to introduce you to them. I wanted to let you hear their stories and learn from their experiences. This is really your chance to listen in on behind the scenes talk and to learn from some of the best in the business. I have to give a huge shout out to my pal, Merritt Goodwin, for this killer intro music. Merritt is the lead guitarist for Stitched Up Heart, and he's also an extremely talented composer. Give him a follow on Facebook at Merritt Goodwin or on Instagram at Merritt Goodwin Official. Now let's bring up the faders and jump into this episode of Mixmasters Podcast. My guest for this episode of Mixmasters is Johnny Curl. Johnny resides in New Zealand, which at the time of this recording is 17 hours ahead of where I'm located in Madison, Wisconsin. It's a wonder we were able to sync things up and get together, but I'm so glad that we did. Johnny has a ton of experience as a front of house engineer, but most recently he's been serving as a systems engineer for groups that include the likes of Soundgarden, Peter Gabriel, Foo Fighters, Adele, Pink, and Billie Eilish. And speaking of Billy, huge shout out to Drew Thornton for hooking me up with Johnny. I really appreciate it, Drew. In this episode, I ask Johnny a ton of questions around system design, system engineering principles, and so on. Some of the questions are a little ridiculous, and I also want to note that Johnny's answers are not to be considered clinical and textbook, but rather just basic guidelines. So without any further ado, let's jump in and listen to what Johnny Curl has to say about system engineering and his experiences on the road. Johnny, it is great to have you as a guest on the podcast here. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to join me. Yeah, good things, mate. I'm glad to be here. It's uh, obviously a strange time for us, so nice to have to think about work again for the first time in a little while. Yeah, strange times indeed. Um, so I met you through Drew Thornton, and you and Drew had been working on the Billie Eilish tour just before everything got closed down thanks to the pandemic. I'm familiar with your history in terms of your resume and whatnot, but I'm not as familiar with how you got started in music. What drew you into music? Did you play an instrument as a kid? And how did you eventually end up in the role that you have today, which is working with some of the world's most talented and and famous performers from around the world? Yeah, of course. I mean, I I grew up listening to music with my old man. He'd he'd play me all this classic rock collection that, that, you know, got me into the stuff that I still consider to be great music at an early age and when I was about five or so parents bought me a guitar and that was kind of the end of it I was I was just addicted to that thing playing guitar hours and hours a day and that was you know all through my childhood all through my teenage years and still to this day to an extent when I have time you know obviously when you're on the road all the time it's a bit difficult but you know whenever I can I pick up the guitar and just and enjoy playing along Oh, that's cool. Um, only guitar, or did you venture into anything else ever? Yeah, I did. I, I played. I played a bit of, bit of bass. Quite a lot of drums. Drums was kind of my second, second instrument for, for a long time. Obviously, even more difficult to play when you're touring all the time now. But, but yeah, I do. I still love getting behind a drum kit. Um, played play a little bit of trumpet. Weirdly, oh, when yeah. I was in my, my early teens, um, which is something I wish I played more of actually. But that was very short lived attempt at a trumpet career. <laughs> yeah, me and the trumpet never got along, so we won't even talk about that. But I'm curious, uh, in your younger days, was there anything in particular or any person in particular that got you interested in the sound aspect of things, more like the engineering side? 
Well, yeah, when I was when I was very young, the guitar teacher I had had a home studio, and so I'd get lessons at his place, um, and the lessons would, you know, consist of actually learning bits and pieces on the guitar, and then getting behind a microphone. Uh, you know, he had a drum kit set up as well. That's where I first started playing drums. So, you know, at about ten years old, I was doing little one-man band tracks. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Which is a good laugh. <laughs> yeah. And that that was also the case in, in high school. You know, we had a, a little studio in high school, and I would do projects in the music uh, department, playing around, and that that got me interested in it. So as soon as I left high school, I was I kind of decided that's what I wanted to do was more the the studio sides of things, which is what I studied and what I started off doing. They kind of developed fairly organically to into uh, working in live shows on a smaller scale and then onward and upward from there. Onward and upward for sure. We'll talk about your resume in just a little bit, but would you take us to the next phase in your life after high school and did you attend any type of college or secondary schooling for sound engineering or anything like that? Yeah, I, I, when I finished school, I enrolled in a, a tertiary education place here called SAE. I think it's in the States as well. Um, and that's primarily studio-based. It's all, um, yeah, it's, it's a audio engineering diploma and you go through various stages of working in different studios with different equipment. I think it's probably changed since I was there because back then you're still, you know, digital was was the go-to, but it was still fairly early. I'm sure it's very different now, but it was a great way to get an introduction to, you know, the, the, the science behind what you're doing to a waveform and why you're doing what you were doing. Oh, that's really cool. Do you happen to remember what those early consoles were? Were they primarily digital or were you on analog or a combination of both? I'll tell you what, I don't really remember what the consoles were. There was it was primarily analog stuff. There was a few different studios in the in the place I studied. There was a couple of analog rooms and a digital room. The digital room was was just a controller for Pro Tools, basically. The other studios were analog. It was recorded digitally, so we weren't dealing with tape or anything, but it wasn't like you know, it wasn't like what you'd expect to see in or what we see at gigs every day now, everything's fully digital. It wasn't like that at all. Yeah, the move to digital has definitely been a advantageous thing in our industry. Are you doing anything with multi-tracking, or do you? How do you benefit from digital technology these days as compared to earlier? Yeah, it's unbelievable. Now you can you can plug one cable into your laptop and you can have a whole show recorded. Whereas previously you, you couldn't do that. You know, if you wanted to get more than eight tracks running at once or something, you'd have to you'd have to rent a studio, you'd have to get involved, and you'd have to know what you were doing as well. That's the other thing now, it's it's a lot more plug and play, it's a lot simpler. Back then it was a bit more challenging. You'd have to have a better understanding of what you're doing and why you're doing it and how to make it work more than anything, actually make everything talk. I think that's one of my favorite things about digital is just the ease of doing everything nowadays. You know, you don't have patch panels and tons of uh, cables running around everywhere. It's It's a lot more plug and play now. Um, and large scale stuff, it's obviously you've got routing options all controlled digitally within whatever control you're using, but it is pretty hard to mess it up unless you're doing anything. If you're doing something complicated, you can mess it up, of course, but if you're just running a simple system, plug it in, make sure you got the right preset, turn it on. It's pretty, pretty much good to go. Obviously there's a lot of technology that we work with in this industry. Have you always been tech savvy, interested in computers, gravitated towards technology? Yeah, not so much computers i was always very interested growing up in how things worked around the house so i was one of those kids that would often annoy the, the hell out of my my mum because i'd be pulling stuff apart in the house um i always just had a fascination for how stuff worked and that i think it 
extended itself to sound when I started learning about sound or when I started playing guitar. I was just fascinated and how to how everything worked and how to manipulate everything sonically and yeah, what what made stuff do what. And so thankfully I haven't torn apart too much expensive gear. But um yeah, we always had a fascination with, with the technology. I love technology and it's obvious you do as well. But that technology really just is a tool to get us information and then it takes a special sort of a brain in my opinion to interpret all of the squiggly lines and information. Are you naturally strong in science, math, physics and whatnot, or was that something that you had to learn over time? I am. I don't I didn't study math or science at university, but I was um I was always uh, I was I was a nerd at school basically. So I've always had uh, I've always been quite comfortable and, and interested in maths and sciences. And so that obviously translates very well to my job now because, as you say, a lot of it is, is physics-based or even just having to do quick calculations and, and try and understand what calculations you need to do. You need to have a, a brain that lets you do that or that wants you to do that, you know? I am beyond jealous of that type of a brain. I fancy myself as somebody who knows enough to be dangerous. And I do like to pick on myself a lot during the podcast here. But uh, it's definitely impressive that, you know, for guys that can look at those graphs and, and information and look at, you know, figure everything out on the fly, I have so much respect for, for people that can do that, yourself included. So let's jump ahead here. You, you attended secondary school. You uh, got introduced to recording through your music teacher. But then how did you make the transition into live sound? I basically had an artist in the studio. I was working in a studio for a while after I finished studying i had an artist who uh i'd with who asked if i'd be interested in coming to a, a small club show and it was it was a bar show rather it was only about 150 people asked if i could come along and jump behind the console and i did it and i thought jesus is more exciting than being in a small <laughs> a small <laughs> room all day with no windows so i started chasing that a little more it was it was more of a thrill and a rush and, and it still used the same principles that i'd learned in the studio and i was still achieving what i was achieving in the studio um with just the added satisfaction of it being high intensity environment and a stressful environment, which is something that I quite enjoy. Yeah, that intensity and rush is something that people either love or hate. I always, I get a kick out of talking to studio guys because most of them say something to the effect that, you know, they don't understand how we can do what we do and, and dealing with all the pressure. And, you know, if something is going wrong, you can't send the band out on a, a break or whatever. And then I talked to the live sound guys and they're like, I don't know how those studio guys do what they do. I, I couldn't spend eight hours trying to position a kick drum mic just right. So it is uh, funny how we're all wired to enjoy something uh, that somebody else may not. Changing gears, could you talk a little bit briefly about what the music scene is like in New Zealand at the club level? I mean, the local music scene here is, is it's busy. There's plenty of stuff going on. Obviously, right now is a, a different situation. Usually it's very busy. There's not really many venues, unfortunately. There's a there's a handful of smaller venues. They are very small. You're talking 150, 200 person cap max, I'd say. But they're always got gigs. You know, every Thursday, Friday, Saturday, you've got gigs at all these places, and it's fun. It's not really a great place to be learning to 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 mix bands anymore because it's not it's not like the gear you find in other parts of the world, and it's not the the systems you find in other parts of the world, but it's definitely a very busy scene. Let's jump into the next phase of your life. So how did you make the transition from those club and theater level gigs in New Zealand to working with a powerhouse company like Brit Row over in the UK? It was a fairly uh, fairly natural growth. 
in that I was doing gigs for local bands. They'd be doing bigger events or, you know, small festivals and stuff. And then at these small festivals, I'd meet the local guys doing systems there and, and front house teching there. And I'd start getting to know people who were working for the supply companies over here. And I started doing uh, work for all sorts of supply companies down here. Um, and that's where I got my contact for Brit Row. But I, I spent a good number of years working for various supply companies and working with different artists and with different systems and getting my hands hands on all sorts of all sorts of systems in different situations. And that was a, a great training ground for me before I moved over to the UK. Were you using Smart during those early earlier days of your club level work? I'm assuming you were, but I just wanted to confirm. I was using it back then. I a lot of the stuff that I was doing was much smaller scale than what I'm doing now, obviously. So you'd use it. I didn't use it to the extent that I use it now. I didn't quite have the understanding that I that I have of the software now. But I was certainly using it in most situations. And you know, if you if you had the same venue that you'd revisit every second week, or if you had a house gig, I had a house gig here, for example. I'd use Smart when I was setting it up and getting comfortable with the room. But after that, it was you know back in the bag. I did have a kit, but it didn't always come out. Oh yeah, that makes complete sense. I think a lot of people at the club and theater level are working with the same PA day after day, sort of the similar venue day after day, same deployment. So it wouldn't make sense to do a lot of smart uh, adjustments and measuring because nothing's really changing. Can we go back and talk a little bit about how you got involved with Brit Row? Did you have a contact or how did you get working with them? Um, it was a contact that I that I had done here working in one of the supply houses. He used to work at Brit Row. He used to be the warehouse manager. And so as I told him that I was looking at moving over, he, he sent an email to the, the crew logistics coordinator over there who um, who replied pretty much straight away. And I was in their warehouse the day after I arrived, just in, introducing myself to everyone and seeing how it all worked. It's all very different to over, over in New Zealand. You know, it's a much larger scale. But they were very uh, interested in getting me on board straight away. And I, and I worked, um, yeah, I worked as soon as I arrived, basically. If my research serves me correctly, I think as soon as you got over to the UK and started working with Brit Row, one of the first tours you worked with was Soundgarden uh, in Europe. Is that correct? Yeah, and that obviously with Brit Row, that was a, that was a small arena tour around Europe and UK. So it wasn't as long as the stuff that I'm doing now, and it wasn't as involved as the stuff I'm doing now. But it was a great introduction, and, and because previously I've been doing a lot of rock and metal bands in, in New Zealand, it was quite comfortable for me to step into that realm in a large environment. I mean, I wasn't doing the role that I'm doing now. I wasn't, as I said, I wasn't as involved, but it was a uh, very good first introduction for me. Well, obviously you made a pretty strong impression on people in that first uh, go-round with Soundgarden because very shortly after that, you started working with ridiculous-level acts, people like Peter Gabriel and the Foo Fighters and Adele and uh, Billie Eilish. And then, but I think the the artist that you worked with the longest was pink and that camp is that correct yeah it's correct that was a good two and a half year run from mid 2017 through to the end of 2019 and i know you mentioned that you weren't system engineering right away for soundgarden but i'm assuming you were system engineer for all those other tours yeah for, for a, a vast majority of them i was system engineering for some of them i was system tech for in my earlier days i was you know, front of house teching and, and system teching before I established myself as a as a system engineer. But for the last, you know, number of years, I've been exclusively doing all the system engineering. Yeah, that's just, that's fantastic. And, and kudos to you again for making that transition and jumping into a 
critical role like system engineer on so many big tours. Speaking of big tours, let's talk about Pink for a little bit here. I'm curious to learn how you get started uh, with your system design because I think you're responsible for putting the system together. Do you consult with the artist, the the music manager, the front of house engineer? How do you design a system for somebody like Pink? Well, whenever I start a tour, there's always I look at what the artist is doing. There's always a system that I think will be best for that tour or for for whatever I'm trying to achieve. And that's often very similar between tours. If I was to put out a starting template, it would always look very similar depending on what the tour, um, you know, any any limitations that I was aware of of the tour. As soon as you put out your first initial design, you're obviously going to get uh, a bunch of stuff coming back from ring departments and other departments that are saying, hey, this isn't going to work when you change this, this, and this. Um, and that includes also, could be front of house guys saying, hey, I prefer to do something like this, or it could be, artist management saying we've tried some in the past and the artist doesn't like it or anything along those lines. Uh, a Pink Tour, for example, I I put that system together in the second half of 2017 and um, in the very early stages of, of the design phase. And so I was working very regularly with the other departments and, and most importantly with our head rigger who would have everything in front of him at all times. And I could say, hey, I want to ship this to this position. Is that going to work? And he'd either give me a yes or a no. Some tours, you, you send through initial design, everything fits perfectly into the plot, and that's you. you. You're good to go. But other tours, it can be weeks or months of moving stuff around until every department's happy. Obviously, that can then all change again completely when you get into rehearsals if they want to drop stuff or add stuff. But thankfully, with, with a tour like Pink, once we've got everything finalized on the on the rig, we, we stayed static. Are they giving you any type of special requirements or parameters at that stage? So in other words, are they asking for a certain type of SPL level at a certain distance or frequency response or coverage? Or what sort of information are you given to work with? Usually those sorts of parameters I can determine myself. The The main criteria I get given uh, is normally from a show designer or a set designer saying you need to be you know, minimum trim height of this, more, more to keep visual aspects clean um the same applicable for front fills or for stuff anywhere else in the ground you know it could be a bit of a bit of a battle trying to get stuff where you want it or to find a way to get stuff where you want it without it being problematic for the other departments but usually anything like frequency coverage or spl or, or any of that's up to me are there ever any type of weight restrictions either from a rigging or a transportation standpoint usually not from a ring side usually what I'll do at the side of a tour is I'll give my maximum weights for any hangs and I'll normally up that by a couple of boxes just in case there's a situation where I want to change something in the tour. Um, and if they sign that off, you know, they're, they're pretty pretty good at looking in advance at all the different roofs and, and they know if there's any grids in the States or anywhere around the world that aren't going to take certain weights and they'll tell me in advance if there's going to be problems. So weight, a weight issue is not something that we deal with too often. Trucking is uh it's a bit of a different different story sometimes we you know we get in a bit of trouble for taking up too much truck space sometimes we've got more truck space than we need but that's something that the production manager will decide as as they start allocating trucks and whatnot so it's normally a few shows in when you by the time you've got everything where it's going to travel and you realize how much space you're taking up or or what do you happen to recall how many trucks were involved with the pink tour for production purposes that was an unusual one because we had gear scattered around. We did have stuff in, in various trucks. I think when we got to the stadium tour, it was a bit bit more straightforward. And I think off the top of my head for audio, 
and backline as well. I think we had five trucks. Oh, wow. The system we had there, we had a truck parked stage right for all the stage right audio, truck parked stage left for all the stage left audio, we had a delay truck, and we had uh, all the control, front fills, uh, and that included monitors and backline went into a fourth truck. So, so I correct myself, it was four trucks. Can you talk a little bit about the L acoustic system that you had in those trucks for the pink tour? So I believe you were working with primarily K2s, K1s. Uh, can you talk about the, the quantity of boxes that you had in each deployment? So for your mains, your side fills, your 270s, your delay towers and whatnot? Uh, I can start with the arena tour if you like. And I, I reminded myself this earlier today so I can give you the, the correct numbers. <laughs> so for the arena system we had... On the main hang, 12K1 with 4K2 underneath it. Um, and that was coming in further down the room by a delay hang of 8K2. So I decided to try and uh, lessen the length of the main hang and, and put more more speakers further down the room because she spent so much time in front of the PA and I wanted to try and you know reduce the throw of those top boxes so when she's flying around the room, she's not getting caned by a lot of HF. <laughs> uh, beside that, we had... 8K1 SBs flown per side as, as a subhang. Um, on a side hang, I had 8K1 with 8K2, and I had 12K2 as a, as a 270 hang. Um, and then front fills, we, we kept as Cara, single Cara, so it's just a small front fill system in the VIP pit, and we had a sub array of 27 KS28s in an arc, in a physical arc underneath the stage. I truly struggle to fathom those numbers uh but i'm going to try with the subs so you had 27 ks28 subs was that cardioid configs of yeah correct so we had nine nine clusters of three wow so can we dive in a little bit into the design of that that sub array for example how do you even get started on something like that is that something that you have experience with through other shows or you're using software to do some sort of modeling on or are you working with uh, the front of house engineer to put this together? What's what's your process for designing something that impressive? There's a, there's a lot of modeling went into it at the start to see what was going to work and what wasn't going to work. And then once we had a, uh, a concept, it was a matter of trying to determine what parameters in that array would work best to fit in the structure that we were working with. So that's to say, what could we do to make it fit under the stage while still being within... Uh, whatever limitations we had to make it a, f a functioning subarray. So for, for that purpose, I actually I built a, a sub-calculator that I put together just, just for that tour. Um, it's just an Excel file, but it, it's, it's pretty good. You punch in some numbers and it will tell you what sort of spacing you want, what sort of coverage you're going to get, and if there's going to be any problematic frequencies. And that was something that I'd refer to. Once we had production rehearsals, I'd be referring to it every day because, you know, they might want to move something under the stage. They might want to increase the depth of the stage or or reduce the depth of the stage and then with that subcalculator I could make some quick adjustments to make sure it was going to fit around the stage legs and also be be easy enough to get in and out which is something you got to consider as well. Oh, absolutely. Can you talk a little bit about the stage designers and what your relationship is with them? I'm assuming that Pink isn't going to the local rental house and picking up stage decks. It's got to be fully engineered, one-off designed uh, specifically for her production, but what sort of things weigh into your system design so that you don't interfere with the stage, for example? Well, all of the stage travels with us, so there's nothing that's provided locally, and in a big tour like that, everything comes with you. And with the stage, every 
piece of staging is built in the exact same place every day. So, for example, if I was to mark something under a stage as a reference point for me, every day that deck would be in the same position. And um, with with the show designers and the, the stage team, I'll be in contact with them pretty early on in the design phase to make sure that we've got a relationship for when I need to go, hey, look, I'm trying to put something under here. Can we make it work? Or what's going to prevent this from happening? And, yeah, so I'll talk to them from from early on and, and just work with them throughout the entire process. Oh, that's so fascinating. And I'm going to guess that the staging came from Tate, which is, uh, they're tied in pretty closely with Claire Global, right? Right, because they're right next door to, to Claire, which is where this tour prepped. And, for example, for for the subarray we got some custom dollies built um i sent them through some cad files and 3d cads for them to build off and i actually made a mistake in the cad files i deleted a, a part off the sub so i ended up in a van sending three subs over to see if it would fit on these decks and sure enough it was about you know half an inch off at one side so it's pretty pretty handy that they were next door because otherwise we got to the first gig and gone oh no we're going to need these worked on thankfully they sorted it out with all their machinery and, and you know less than a day and we had them good to go but but that's that's yeah pretty pretty nice having them next door out there yeah that's an amazing facility that the campus the rocklet its campus and then also just the claire machining and and woodshop capabilities are insane they also have and people have heard me talk about this quite a bit on other shows but they have the uh the box or the facility where you can set up your PA, hang it, and try everything out. Is that something that you took advantage of before going out on the road? At the start of the, the Pink Tour, we put our system up um, in the rehearsal facility there. We didn't do any production rehearsals there, but we did get a chance to put all the acoustics up and make sure everything was good to go. So when we got into production rehearsals, it was easy in. We have used that uh, rehearsal space for other tours. So we were there with, with Billy Eilish earlier this year, and that was a bit more of a... Um, full production rehearsals we had all the elements of the show up and just made sure everything was going to work and that's where they did the the design rehearsals as well let's take a quick diversion from pink discussion and talk a little bit about billy eilish because that's a great uh, point so i know in talking with drew thornton he indicated that the box was a really cool facility but it also was a double-edged sword because you didn't have the same physical space that you might have in a typical arena so you know, what sort of adjustments are you making or what sort of consolidations are you making in a space like the Lidditz box so that you're not completely turning your system tuning or design on its ear based on the size of the venue compared to like an arena? Rehearsals there are tricky because in any rehearsal phase, you want to get your entire system up. And that's more for logistical reasons, like marking all your, your cables and making sure everything fits and everything reaches, uh, as well as obviously wanting to get an idea of how the system's going to sound and interact problem with that place is is your side hang and your rear hang going to be blasting directly at a at a wall and so is a good two-thirds of your main hang so you got to say to yourself am i going to try and am i going to try and change everything so it's going to be more realistic and more uh like what we'd expect to see in an arena or am i going to have to say hey look we're not going to have it sound like an arena but you're going to have you know an idea as to what's going to be hitting you at front of house without any of the interaction of the other hangs because that's a that's a big consideration of those is even if you were to talk about you know taking away your, your side hang or your rear hang you're still missing interaction that you would be getting otherwise and so it's not a very realistic representation of what you'll be getting in an arena with billy with drew we we, we had a play with it and we i just wasn't comfortable with the results i was getting i wasn't comfortable with them being 
an accurate representation of what we'd get once we hit the arena. So I, I said to him, I was like, look, continue doing what you're doing off to the side in the in the studio room that he was working in. We're going to work with this as it is here. And, and then once we get into the arenas, we'll do some real fine tuning and, and making sure it sounds exactly as we need it. But for now, if we, if we get too far, if we work too much on this, as soon as we get into arena, it's going to sound completely different. Yeah, it's got to be really challenging to not make drastic adjustments to your mixed based on what you're hearing at the box, for example. But the nice thing about a facility like the Lidditz campus is you can set everything up, check your cabling, make sure everything's fit together and working well. And then when you get to your first arena gig a few days early, you take that opportunity to do a full production rehearsal and run through. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, yeah, the number of reflections you're getting off the walls and, and the lows circling around the room it's just we couldn't get anything that was going to remotely repre- represent what we'd get in a in a real room so we thought let's just drop it for now and, and work properly once we get into the arena in miami oh that's so cool thanks for talking a little bit about billy eilish let's go back to talking about pink and specifically around some of the cabling that you utilize for that production are you creating all of that custom with claire or is it, are you sending them an order for those cables or how does that side of things work out? In a situation like that, I'd normally send through a list of, of what I'd like um, as far as cabling and what I was concerned. And Claire's pretty great with, you know, you turn up and everything's in boxes labeled for you. Everything's color coded as per whatever color codes you've, you've requested. And it's pretty much good to go. You, you, you can be sure that everything's been tested and, and you know, everything works. It's, it's, it's pretty easy once you've, once you've sent through a list of requirements. This is going to be a silly question, but I think I know the answer to it. Does the cabling live with the stage, or do you hang it at each venue when you arrive? No, everything everything comes down. Um, so for ground cable under the stage, for example, we had a system where we could we could clip it up and hang it all up, so it could it could roll with the stage when the stage was built at the far end of the arena. We could uh, install it in advance, and it would roll safely into position just to save some time. But all the main PA speaker cable, everything. Is, uh, is much higher up in the air. With the Pink Tour, for example, I had uh, all the amp racks were flown um, and they they trimmed pretty much at hook height, as high as they could go. So they were, they were about 20 meters in the air. Um, and that meant I could reduce cable lengths and the, the PA cable. It meant that we could have everything tidy and, and a, yeah, it, looked, it looks better and it sounds better. It's the main thing is, is the shorter cable lengths do sound better. And that was one of the reasons why we wanted to mock it up and let it just to make sure that everything was good to go. Because obviously once you've got a system in the air and you've got other elements around it and below it, it's very hard to bring it all down in one hit if you uh, haven't figured it out in rehearsals. Yeah, and I'm trying to do some quick math here with that L Acoustics gear. How many amp racks did you end up having to fly or how many amps was it like 20, 22? So we had uh, Claire and Burrow built some custom flying amp racks um, and we took them out to fly them for the first time. And they housed, I think it was 25 LA-12Xs. Um, so they're 27 new, three bays wide. Uh, so we had 25 amps and we had motor control built into that. And we had a power distro built into that. So it was a single kind of one rolling solution. We'd roll into place to get picked up by two one-ton motors and, and we'd send it sky high. All we had on the ground there was a small a distro rack that was you know, 18U rack or something, and that had some signal distribution and, and another little power distro, and that was that. <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing off mic here uh, rather poorly, and Johnny can see me sort of chuckling because 
my mind's just blowing the magnitude of scale. If you ever wondered the difference in like a tour with pink versus what I work on, when you refer to an 18U rack as little, that's saying something about the level and amount of gear that you're working with. No, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you if you think about what you see in the after the wings in an arena show, normally that the kind of amp world and, and distro and stuff you see down there is pretty bulky and pretty large. So when you can strip that back to just being, you know, one eighteen year rack, then it it is actually quite small. Surprisingly small. I hope that I reach the point in my career where an eighteen U rack is considered small, but Let's uh, move on and talk a little bit about some of that gear and having it flown in the air. I'm curious about what type of redundancy you have to have in place and what your control systems look like. Is it correct to assume that you were traveling with Lake LM44 processors? And then how did you control those? What type of lines were you sending and what did that look like? Yeah, so as far as the infrastructure running around, what we had going from front of house to these racks was uh, everything was primarily done over Dante. You're correct in that. We had lakes for, for all the signal distribution um, and for some some of my filters. I do the majority of my filters and, and um, measurement and optimization in uh, Network Manager, the acoustic software, but I use lake for all the distribution. We're sending Dante Line, uh, which had control and digital audio to the amps. I sent a second Dante uh a digital Dante priority from a second lake at front of house that was on a UPS in case we had any issues with power. Um, and as well as that, I had analog lines going directly from a line driver at front of house uh, straight into the lakes in case there was any issues with those two Dante lines or in case there was a digital cable issue, for example, then the lakes would drop back to that analog line. And then as a, as a fourth redundancy, I had that another analog line from front of house from a line driver going directly into the back of the amplifiers. So if there was any issues with, with any of the lakes if, or any of the power or anything, it would drop as a final drop. It would drop back to analog directly into the amps. And everything was obviously level matched and, and checked. And and it was a pretty, I mean, I'd say flawless redundancy system. It was It was pretty thorough, at least. Yeah, I was going to say four layers of redundancy for control is thorough and comprehensive, but at that level, I'm assuming it's a necessity. There are no other options. Well, we wanted to make sure we had all our bases covered, um, but we obviously had the added challenge of everything being up in the air and very hard to access. So it was accessible. There was a, a climbing system to get to it, but it wasn't particularly fast. So, I mean, when you're talking about large-scale concert touring any any seconds of audio lost is is a big deal even you know split seconds so for us to have as much redundancy as we could was was very important for us oh i can't even imagine i don't know if you remember or not but i i watched in horror a couple of years ago footage of radiohead's console at coachella crashing and needing to reboot and i just remember feeling absolutely sick to my stomach while the the console was down for 30 seconds, not passing audio and what that had to be like. Can we change gears and go back to the Lake LM44 processors? Would you mind going into a little bit of detail about the type of filtering you're using and how you're applying those in a show for somebody like Pink? I'm really curious about that side. Yeah, so for that tour, I'll have LM44s in front of house and then uh, a handful of LM26s at the Amperex just for further distribution. LM44s I'd be using at front of house and I'd use Lake Controller only for 
looking at doing filters for any uh, frequencies that I found to be problematic in a room in, in, a, in an acoustical sense. So not for kind of tone shaping of the system, but more for getting rid of anything that I thought was problematic or any any frequencies that are circling around the room or anything that came up when I'd do sweeps and smart, I'd use Lake exclusively to get rid of those or to manage those. And then I'd jump into Network Manager to do the rest of my system EQ. And that's my typical approach for, for that is I like to kind of keep those things separate. I'm not sure why I keep them separate, but I, I like to have one where I consider it to be, this is my system EQ. This is what I'm doing to make the system sound how I want it to sound. And then another page for going, this is for these nasty things that I don't want to think about now that I've got rid of them. Another silly question that I think I already know the answer to, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Do you find that you leave the lake processing rather static or unchanged from show to show? Or is that something that you're adjusting every single day when you get to a venue? What I'll, what I'll find I do is I'll, I'll do my system EQ. When I'm talking about room uh, problems or problematic frequencies at the lake, I'm talking more about the, the sub and low, low mid stuff that's circling around the room that typically won't change if it's an empty room or a, or a full room, it's, it's actual acoustical issues with the room itself. And, and Network Manager, for example, if I've done some EQ on a system, I'll leave it at that. And then once the show starts, I'll, I'll often find myself changing it, reintroducing certain frequencies or taking some further out. Um, and that just depends on how how the crowd changes the room. And and also sometimes how to, to battle the crowd to an extent. There are some frequencies that you might take out in an empty room and then find yourself putting back in when it's full because it... it gets over the people or it tames the people sometimes. Oh yeah. Wow. This is unbelievably fascinating and really educational. So thank you again for going through all of these silly questions. Could we talk a little bit about your smart rig and what it looks like these days? What, what is your interface like? What type of microphones are you using? Where are you deploying them? Um, Take us through the process of what you do to, set up an arena or a stadium and, and get your measurements with smart and your particular system. Yeah. So my smart rig at front of house, I have a, a Fireface UFX. Um, that's got four mic pre's and I use all four of those. So I've got four wired mics, um, as well as electrosonics wireless mic. And when I'm looking at, when I'm looking at a system EQ, I'll have all four of those mics out and I'll be taking measurements at different parts of, of the floor, different parts of the, the bowl. I do prefer to use the wired mics for that over the wireless mics just because I have had some some unusual results, especially in, in your lows and especially if your gain structure is not set correctly. So I try and rely on the wired mics for all my for all my system EQ, I guess you call it. And then I'll rely on the electrosonics for doing any zonal EQ, which is looking at kind of uh, controlling and and dealing with the HF and stuff that you can look at with FIR filters on the Alacoustic software. So I'll go on to different zones of the PA and make sure each of those are flat, basically. I'll be using my smart rig, which is controlled by VNC and an iPad, and I'll have a secondary iPad, which is controlling Network Manager, and I'll walk around the room and make sure that each zone of the PA is is consistent. Once I've done that, then I'll look at an overall EQ for that hang. So... I'll normally start with the main hang, and I normally prioritize my main hang, especially in a situation if you if you don't have a, as much time as you'd like to. I like to have my main hang good for sound check, and then I'll often find that I'm doing my overall EQ for the side and the rear hang as I'm as I'm walking around in sound check, for example. Um, a, a very powerful tool that's relatively new that I use is the the Alacoustics 
M1 software, which is uh, which works with their, their P1 processor, and that's a um, a measurement suite and and optimization suite and whatnot. That's also got four mic free, so I use those same four mics in that unit, and uh, I'll take sweeps around the room, different parts of the room, and look at overall system EQ and look at uh, frequencies that are problematic in, in every part of the room. Because one thing that is is very common with people is I'll take you know measurements in one part of the room, and I'll go, "Hey, look, we've got too much of this frequency here," and take it right the way out. But that's not the case for the other parts of the room, and then you end up with a hole in other parts of your room. So I like to look at average responses all around, um, and that's that's my typical approach to to EQing each hang. Um, when it comes to to time alignment, I'll use Smart for some things, and but for most things, I'll do it by ear. So I'll typically listen to noise and position stuff uh, how I how I want it from an imaging perspective. So, for example, if I'm underneath my main hang and I've got front fills I'll, I'll just run both uh, pick noise through both and I'll do I'll add delay to the front fills and, and stop when it sounds right to me and that's my typical approach for for time alignment for, for alignment of my subs I use smart so I can get a good reading of the phase and see again I'll have multiple mics out and see what's most beneficial where and what's going to be problematic and where I have to make any compromises but typically once we've you do all this during production rehearsals once you're out on the road if you know that in a certain area if your subs is going to read this measurement then you can comfortably say unless there's any bizarre room reflections that it's going to be consistent to what you had the previous day and what you had for, for the however many months of the tour you've been doing it looking a little deeper into some of that tuning philosophy and approach can you talk about where you cross over your mains and your subs specifically and how you're utilizing the science and the information that you're gathering from smart I'm assuming that you're measuring in multiple locations, but are you specifically targeting problem areas or nice flat areas? Where are you going to make sure that everything is smooth and responsive? I'll look uh, obviously the crossover point for the subs that I'm that I'm working with is, is 60 hertz, and I'll look at making sure that I've got uh, enough overlap. I mean, if you're looking at uh, a system where you've got the sub that's recommended to be used with with this top box. You're gonna you're gonna have pretty good phase alignment. What you should do, unless there's something wrong. Um, so normally there's a good couple of octaves of consistent uh, phase where you're in phase, which means you've got plenty of room to play with the level of the subs without affecting the phase relationship. Um, I'll typically look at getting myself a reference point um, at front of house, and I'll also have a secondary mic that is in a problematic area, so I can see what's happening. You know, if you're talking a left-right system, I'll, I'll have a mic also placed in that that uh, area of cancellation just off to, you know, stage left in front of house. I always, for some reason, I always work on stage left. And I have a mic there and I'll see what's happening there. And then I'll also look at directly in front of the system, uh, like dead on with the main hang. So I'll have those three positions that I like to have a reference. And then once I've got a comfortable idea of how they relate to one another, then I'll normally look at front of house and just have my mic on the ground at front of house. You mentioned that you're using a, an iPad or a wireless device to take some measurements uh, before the show and sometimes during the show. Can you talk a little bit about the wireless network that you have in place to support that? I can't imagine how robust it has to be to support your mission-critical activities 
while there is 20,000 plus people in an arena, I just, I have troubles in little bars with my iPads and I was curious how you get yours to work so well. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you're correct. I use an iPad to walk around during the show. Um, the last couple of tours have used a, a ubiquity unify mesh system. So that's a, a number of, of access points on the same mesh network. And I typically set them up so they're on different channels and basically I'll, I'll just try and hedge my bets and hope that I hope that not all of those channels that I've selected are being used by the house systems. Uh, and, and normally, normally it's fairly flawless. I'll have one positioned at stage right, one positioned at stage left, one positioned at front of house and one positioned at delays if I'm using them. Um, and then my iPad will just jump to whatever the strongest and most reliable signal is. It's been issues in the past where as soon as doors open, the house system repeaters get, get put to a hundred percent and that can be problematic. But one thing that I try and routinely do is, is when I'm talking about a technical package or advanced package with production managers, I try and ask them to, to request a certain channel to be freed um, for my system. So I always have my primary access point on a certain channel and hopefully people will uh, keep that free for me. Yeah. It's crazy how congested the wireless workspace is these days and also it's probably surprising to a number of people just how much wireless is used in a live performance production uh, whether it's the artist on stage mixing their in-ears from a, a tablet or whether it's somebody like you using a tablet to monitor the system and make adjustments on the fly it's so critically important uh, quick question how many microphones are you using during the performance to monitor the system at front of house Typically, I'll, I'll have two set up in front of house. So I'll have one uh, kind of in a roughly where I'm stood. Uh, so I can, if I don't believe something my ears are telling me, I'll look at the screen and verify. And I'll also have one in a similar position, but on the ground. So I get a better representation of what's happening um, in the low mids and the lows. Um, as far as walking around the room during showtime, I don't, I don't carry a mic around with me. I prefer to do that by ear. Um, and what I'm doing when I'm walking around the room is is making adjustments for changes in, in environmental conditions. And, you know, oftentimes you'll have to reduce your HF in certain zones or increase it in certain zones. And I like to do that by air because, like I said before, sometimes there's certain crowd elements that you're you're fighting against, so you're trying to get over a workaround. And I find it's better to do that by air than with, than with smart or anything. So come show time, I, I do everything by air. Speaking of those things that you're trying to work around or, or deal with on the fly, do you find that there's a certain set of repeatable frequencies that are problematic night after night? Like, are you always having to cut 315 or are you always having to watch, you know, something around uh, 2.25 or anything like that? I don't have any, any go-to frequencies. They're all the ones that I'm looking at when I'm, when I'm measuring at the start of, a, uh, the start of my alignment are always sub- 125 so it's always the low stuff that circles around the room for ages and that's that's just due to the architecture of the room and for me to to find those i'll look at impulse sweeps and smart and i'll i'll have different positions and i'll basically average out those positions and see what frequencies are constantly offending me it's uh it's quite easy to if you have certain songs that that trigger that frequency range it's quite easy to find them from your tracks as well but uh yeah, they vary every day. There's there's normally only a few that I'll I'll put a few filters in and I'll pull them back by a few dB and that's tamed it enough for me. I do like to keep it. I like to keep that room feel. So I don't try and get rid of them entirely. I like to have that organic room nature. Otherwise, 
you know, to me, that's what makes you feel like you're in an arena show, not a club show. You know, it's still sound, it sounds different to a club show. It's bigger, it's weightier, and it breathes more. And I like that. I like it to be organic like that. I totally appreciate that. And I also appreciate the work that you put into tuning the system so that you can have that big, high energy surrounding feel to the sound system, but yet keep everything controlled so that things aren't getting crazy and out of hand. Uh, listeners to the podcast have heard me tell the story about uh, my nightmare show where uh, low frequencies were getting away from me. And it was partially because of the room, partially because of the design of the sound system, and partially, you know, a large portion was what I was doing. <laughs> I was uh, failing miserably at that show. So apologies to everybody again for that experience. But um, I heard you mention a little bit ago that after you get done sweeping and taking your measurements that you like to listen to a few songs uh, to sort of dial in the PA in those final steps. Would you mind sharing some of those songs that you like to use and maybe explain what you like about those songs? Yeah, so starting with with uh, a track that is really good for finding those offensive frequencies in the lows and, and low mids. It's a song called Pretty Little Thing by Fink. Um, that is, it's great for that because it's got an acoustic guitar and it's got a very low mid heavy vocal and the way he sings, it, it's very full range. And if you're listening to that and you're just getting frequencies setting off left, right and center, it's a pretty good way of, of finding what's going to be offensive in a room, what's not. Um, I've been using that for, for a number of years and, and it's one of my go-tos. Another one that I use for uh, a broader range of frequencies is a track by Gregory Porter called Hey Laura. And that's um, it's another good track for, it's got a lot of low information with it, with an upright bass that again is very dynamic. So you can look at, you can look and listen to what is getting set off in your room, but it's also got quite interesting uh, mid integrity. So it's great for vocal intelligibility. It's great for making sure you're going to, uh, get over the screams of people in a room, for example. Um, that those are my two starting tracks. Um, a track that I use for imaging and for making sure my delay, et cetera, is, is where I want it to be is Dreams by Fleetwood Mac. And that's um, it's got a lot of, a lot of really crisp HF and, and really good detail in the HF. And that's great for localizing your image and, and doing whatever you want to do, as well as checking you've got good intelligibility and, and good HF throw. And uh, another one that I that I use for intense sub stuff is a, uh, a track called Moan by Trent Moller, I think it's pronounced. And um, that's just very, very, very heavily compressed sub-heavy electronic music that is a great test of not only sub-coverage and consistency, but also what your system is capable of because... If you can play that at a uh, high SVL, you can you can probably guarantee your show is going to be all right in the lows. Yeah, for sure. I always appreciate hearing what people are using for tuning songs because I tend to learn about new songs and learn new tips and tricks. One of the things I picked up from Nick Rucker from Steel Panther was Donald Fagan's IGY song uh, is very unique in the respect that every frequency band on your equalizer seems to correlate or correspond to something very specific in the song. So for example, if I pull 400 hertz, I'm going to lose a majority of my vocals. If I push 6K, I'm going to get just a boatload of hi-hat. So it's really interesting how responsive that song is to EQ changes. Can we change gears again and sort of take all of the individual pieces that you were talking about that you perform as part of your daily duties and just give us a look into the day in the life 
for you while you're on tour. So for example, as soon as the bus gets to the venue, what does your day look like? Yeah, so normally roll into a venue. It depends on the tour and and the scheduling, but sometime between eight and, and nine, um, I'll get off the bus and the first thing I'll do is I'll I'll verify that the room that I've got in my software and sound vision is is accurate. So I'll get a laser measure and I've got I've got one laser measure, I've got an optical rangefinder that I use as well, and I'll just take some quick measurements of the room, make sure everything is correct as far as uh, both room dimensions as well as um, where my points are in the room. So that's another big thing is making sure that you're actually where you're expecting to be. Um, that's the first thing I do. What, I, what I've normally have done the previous night or or the previous day during sound check or, or rehearsals or whatever is I'll do a design for that following day. So I'll have a preliminary design done. Uh, once I verify the room and make sure everything's as I want it to be, I'll look at the design and see if there's any changes I want to make, um, if there's anything that needs to be addressed by way of stuff in the room that I haven't expected to find or, or anything like you know, reflective surfaces or asymmetric parts of the room, for example. Once I make any adjustments with that, I'll get the uh, angles and whatnot printed out and I'll, I'll give them to, to the PA guys. Uh, meanwhile, they're, they're getting everything ready to put it up, so they're laying out their cable truss, they're getting everything in position and kind of lining up the PA. Typically, once I've got all my angles finalized i like to kind of go around and do the angles myself which which helps the guys out because they're busy doing running cable on the truss gives me something to do and also it's it's kind of comforting for me to know that i've done them and it's also nice for for them because if there's a wrong angle it's always my fault and there's (laughs) sometimes there's wrong angles i'll be honest but that that's uh yeah that's the next step once everything's up in the air we'll we'll verify that all the lines work, all the circuits are working before we take it to trim. So I can do that just with sweeping each box, basically. We'll do that. If that all, all goes all right, we'll send it up to the air to trim and look at getting all the ground stuff in underneath it once the stage is rolled, rolled into place. And I like to have everything up um, and verified by by lunchtime usually. So after, after everything's up and good to go, I'll grab a quick plate of food and then I'll start looking at doing my alignment, which is how we'll start with... Um, once front house is all set up, I start doing some sweeps and, and making some noise measurements, walking the room a bit and doing everything I need to do to hand over to front house engineer. Once I've had a listen, played some music and front house engineers had, had a bit of a play as well, we'll, uh, we'll be around about time for sound check. So we'll do sound check. I'll make more adjustments in the room during sound check, try and get around to other parts of the room that I haven't been able to already or uh, all parts of the room that are more affected by the stage sound that isn't. Uh, something I have to consider when I'm just listening to music, but I can consider when there's a band on stage, for example, like the front fills. Once that's all done, that's it, basically time to get ready for doors, really. So do doors, do the show, and uh, as as I said before, make some adjustments during the show as I feel I need to. Um, after the show, take it all out, put it in the trucks, and get ready to do it again the next day. Easy peasy, rinse, lather, and repeat. Yeah. Um, what's your relationship like with the front of house engineer on a tour like Pink's tour? I think that was um, Dave, and I'm drawing a blank on his last name. That yeah, was Dave Bracey. Yeah, Dave Bracey and I have, have toured uh, together a lot uh, for a number of years, and we're very close. We understand each other's way of working very, very well. We understand each other's ears very well, and there's a lot of trust in that working relationship. And that's very important when you're when you're working alongside someone. 
it's very important for you to be able to make an adjustment and know that it's not going to be fought by by the person next to you. You know, you want to know that what you want to do is something they're going to appreciate, something that they are also hearing, and so you can you can work confidently and comfortably on what you need to worry about without kind of worrying about what they're going to do in response. And thankfully, Dave and I have have worked together for, for long enough to to have that really good relationship. Drew with Billy and I, we uh, Billy Eilish, Drew and I get along really well, and we started to get a really good working relationship and and routine even though we only got a few shows into the tour that was something that i thought was developing really well so i'm looking forward to to working more on that when we get back on the road but i think drew and i will be in that exact same position yeah drew is such an awesome guy i am so fortunate to consider him a friend it's how i got to meet you and i'm i'm super grateful for your time and all of the information that you've been sharing here when you're making adjustments to the system during the show what type of trust is there between you and the front of house engineer? Are you given free reign just to make adjustments at will or do you run it past him first? How does that work? Once you've established that trust, I, I just do what I think it needs to be done and it's and it's typically all right. If um if it's in the early stages of of a working relationship between myself and a front of house guy, then I'll typically run it past or I'll say, Hey, I feel like it's lacking here or it has too much of this or whatever or i want to try this i run it by them and see how they feel and that that's a really easy and, and effective way to uh learn to understand the front house engineer and how they hear things and how they interpret things because say with with drew on billy i could say i'm gonna like, would you like me to try this or should we make a small adjustment or he'd say can we make a small adjustment and we'd listen to it for another track and then go i'll oh, split the difference or take that back or put it back in or take more out and it's a great way of incrementally through you know your first 10 shows or something understanding what works for them how i interpret that and how i can then use that interpretation to make adjustments in the future to make sure i know that they're going to like what i'm doing yeah that's cool how critical is the mix position for the front of house engineer i know it's critical but for a guy like drew who wasn't getting enough low energy in the initial configuration you made some adjustments to accommodate Drew's requests, but how do you do that without affecting the rest of the sound throughout the rest of the venue? It's it's crucial to have your front house engineer comfortable at front of house. Obviously, if they're not fully comfortable, then the mix is going to be affected no matter what. What I always try and do is I always try and have my system to be as consistent as possible, and that is obviously with, with low frequencies and sub frequencies as well. If it's different to what a front house engineer wants to feel or if they're used to having uh, a big bump and summation at front of house in the, in the center of the room, then like like with Drew, for example, I reintroduced some of that power alley to make sure he was comfortable where he was. And thankfully with the situation, uh, sorry, with the configuration we had, it didn't have too many negative effects outside of front of house. So it increased that summation at front of house for him and it had nice low impact and sub impact and it didn't necessarily create massive holes elsewhere, which was, which was a good thing. Yeah. I think with Billie Eilish, you were flying the majority of those subs for Drew. So how did you make those adjustments to get that bump for him to build up that power alley? Was it phase, timing, frequency? Yeah, so what what I had when we first went into that, I had eight KS28s flown uh, per side, which I kicked off at about 30-degree angle and running those in cardioid. And that configuration uh, steered that center of energy away from front of house and put front of house in about uh, a minus 3 dB 
or to minus 6 dB coverage pattern of the subs. And doing that meant that when the two sub sides summed and combined, it wasn't that traditional 6 dB boost that you get dead and center. That's one of the things that I've, I've done. I did that in the, the Pink Stadium Tour as well to try and even the coverage on the floor. But to, to go to work alongside that, I had, it was eight single KS28s on the floor, which I did in the spaced array. Uh, and, I, and I did a, an electronic arc to try and spread those out and have some even coverage. And for me to reintroduce impact for him at front of house, I took the, the coverage uh, pattern that I, that I have for those floor subs and I narrowed it. So it was beaming a little more towards him. It was increasing yeah, directivity of that, that sub arc. And due to the width of that sub around the ground, it kept it within the floor of the bowl and it actually worked quite nicely. It did increase impact for him and it didn't have any weird issues off to the side of the bowl, for example, and there was still good coverage in the flown subsystem all on the side of the bowl and upstairs. One thing that I did with that system too is originally we had delays to, to help the main hang. They got cut, unfortunately, in production rehearsals. And so I increased my main hang and also put some, some subs above my main hang as well. So there's really good low impact down to about 60 hertz coming from the main hang and that really helped get all around the room and it obviously it's a different feel to the sub impact you get from the ks28s but it, it had a nice clean tight punch that, that worked everywhere and was very controllable for me it's so unbelievably fascinating that you can make those adjustments and sort of digitally steer or physically steer a subwoofer and get those type of results because for the longest time, I was always of the mindset that subwoofers are omnidirectional and the bass is just going to go wherever it's going to go. And then as you start working with smart and you start working in bigger environments and with better equipment, you start to realize that you really can shape those things. And so it was really fascinating to hear how you go about doing that. I really appreciate that. We're coming up on time here, but let's jump back into the pink tour. I feel like I've treated you like a ping pong ball here going back and forth, but if my memory serves correctly, when you started the Pink Tour, you were doing festivals and promotional things, and then you went to doing arenas, and then you went to stadiums eventually. Can you talk about some of the adjustments that you have to make to accommodate a stadium size event and sort of uh, some of the things that you differ- do differently for those type of scenarios? Yeah, so so you're correct. We started off doing some festivals and, and a promotional tour, um, the main the main thing that is uh, different about that to any other touring is you're typically not traveling a system. So we didn't have a PA system. I didn't have anything uh, consistent to work off. Um, in those situations, I can try and make whatever system sound as much like another system, or in my in my case, I can try and make whatever sound as close to a K1 as I as I can. But it never it never has the same response. Never feels the same. But the key to that is just trying to get. Uh, a system sounding comfortable and as familiar as possible. When you when you move into arenas, obviously that's as we discussed earlier, you get an opportunity to uh, pitch your system design and you know how that's gonna how that's gonna sound and you know you're gonna be able to work with that. Moving into a stadium tour after that is is a lot of fun because you can take in our situation, for example, we had a good eighteen months of arena touring before we went to stadiums. I could I could take what I learned from those last eighteen months working with the artist and with with the content and going what's going to be good for this in a, in a much larger environment. Moving into stadiums, we had, I mean, I had long lines of PA everywhere. I, I pretty much just had a K1 on everything where I could. And yeah, it was, it was a very big sounding system. And that was something that over, you know, the however many shows we'd done in arenas, I thought, oh, this is what 
I would like to change if we got into a position where I could do it. And that was, you know, for example, instead of having flown K1SBs in the air, I swapped those out for, for 16 KS28s aside, which is a massive subhang. So I had, yeah, 32 KS28s in the air. And similar to what I was saying in the arena tour for Billy, I had them kicked off 30 degrees. I had a serious impact all the way up to the to the top of, of the stadium we were in. And uh, on all the delay hangs, I had K1 everywhere. I had 20 boxes in my main hang and my side hang. There was there was serious impact everywhere. And that was that was just from me having done enough shows and arenas going, is this going to work for this artist with this front of house engineer and with this content? And uh, yeah, it did. It was good. I'm, I'm speechless, which for me, that's an accomplishment because I usually talk way too much. But the, the sub hangs and just the power you must have had in those stadiums is unreal to me can you talk a little bit about the the differences in how you measure your system in a stadium versus in an arena are you using more measurement mics are you changing your positions of your mics what are you doing differently to make up for that massive size difference between the two venues i was a little more reliant on on my wireless mics uh, in the stadium tour just because obviously the distances we're trying to get around it's not very practical to run cables everywhere but yeah, thankfully with the stadium tour, you typically have a load and day. So uh, even though I wasn't making any noise on the load and day, aside from verifying the system worked, at least coming in on show day, first thing in the morning when I was allowed to make noise, I was ready to go and had, uh, you know, the previous day load in to, to look around the room and walk around the room and, and visualize and predict where there were going to be any problem areas or anywhere I'd like to focus on. But yeah, re- more reliant on the wireless mic. Obviously, it's crucial in that situation for the um, for the Wi-Fi to work a little a little better than it might need to in an arena. And yeah, lots of running around, lots of getting sweaty, lots of shirtless days. Did you uh, have a Fitbit on you? I'm curious uh, <laughs> how many steps you took in a day. I did. I wouldn't be able to tell you off the top of my head what it was, but it it was significant. Yeah, it'll be a few. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So for your Substack. With the arena tour, you had 27 subs on the ground. Did that change dramatically for the stadium? Did you fly more subs? Did you add more ground subs? Or how did you handle the low-frequency requirements for the stadium size venues? Yeah, so I got rid of that array. The reason why I went for that for the arena tour is it had very consistent coverage up to about 200 degrees. Now we're in stadiums, so not looking at anything beyond the 180-degree cell line and looking at pushing the energy further. So I swapped that out for a space array along the front of the stage. I only had 12 subs on the ground, so it's not many at all for a stadium show, but bear in mind I had uh, 32 in the air. So I was most reliant on those flown subs and also the low end I was getting out of my main hang. And the ground subs were basically just filling in that that pit in front of the stage before the, the flown subs were able to develop. With the length of the line I had in the flown subs, I had... It, it, it just shot for miles so i actually had a number of situations where like wembley stadium for example we've got a lot of vertical coverage and i increased i opened up that angle of the flown subs to to send some of that sub energy upward so i kind of had a, uh, a half side of a sub array pointing up which was which is very effective and because i had the subs in the ground uh filling in that pit in the bottom i was able to get away with doing that subs i had in the ground i had uh, i wouldn't remember off the top of my head what kind of angle of coverage I had but it was something very small maybe 20 20 degrees just to splay that out and look at evening that ground a little bit and making sure that it uh, met the flown subs nicely and there was no weird interactions with with the flown subs started taking over 
I want to revisit a subject that we talked about briefly before, and then I'll let you go because I know we're way over time. But uh, I, you were talking about the, the subline and getting all of that coverage you know, from 180 out. Can you take us a little further down the road of digitally steering or manipulating low frequency energy? It's a topic that just was really super interesting to me. And you seem to be very good at it, so I'd like to pick as much of your brain as I possibly could. For anybody listening that is like, dude, shut up about the subs, I apologize, but I would really like to know more. Yeah, sub-frequencies and sub-control is something that, that's really fascinated me for a long time. It's something that I, I've spent a long time studying up on, uh, looking at how how to control those frequencies and those wavelengths. And that, the beauty of that is with those lower frequencies, you're talking very long wavelengths that are very easy to manipulate and to to work around if you have an understanding of what you need to do or how you need to make adjustments to work with those. So one thing that I'll always look at doing as a as a starting point for most of my subarrays or subcontrol is I'll increase the line as much as I can and that gives me more beam control over longer frequencies. So if I'm doing something like uh, a ground, a subarray on the ground, for example, I'll look at spacing the subs as, as wide as I can without getting any negative interaction. So typically that's, if you're talking about 60 hertz, you're, you're talking maybe one point, somewhere between 1.3, 1.4 meters spacing before you start getting any cancellation. I'll maximize that. And that means I've got a long array in the front of the, uh, on the floor of the stage. And it's very controllable for me down to a very low frequency. So I can steer that out if I want to. I can increase impact by narrowing it, like in the example we discussed with Billy Eilish. Or if I want to look at smoother coverage with less uh, intensity, I can spread it more. And I know that that spreading with a longer subarray is going to be effective at lower frequencies as well. If you have a narrow array, and if you don't spread it correctly, you're going to have very inconsistent coverage patterns between your upper subfrequencies and your lower subfrequencies. So for me, I always try and increase the length of that line by spacing it as much as I can before it becomes, before it introduces negative interaction. And then I've got better control over my entire subfrequency range. And the same is applicable to an extent for, for flown subs. I said I increased the pink stadium subs to 16 KS28. That's a, that's a ridiculous line. That's, you know, that, that, that's too much <laughs> in, in most situations it is. But if you can control it and if you know what you're doing to steer it and spread it while maintaining impact and treating it like almost like you do with a, with a, with a line array, then you can get really good results, and it's a very effective system. It's also applicable. A lot of people don't realize with with the low elements of of your your PA hang. If you think a system like a K1 hang is a lot of low energy, and if you understand how best to manipulate that, how best to choose the number of boxes you're using, and and trim heights, and and how you're going to mechanically design that PA, you can work with the mechanical design and electronic design and come up with coverage patterns that previously weren't achievable or a lot of people aren't realize are, sorry a lot of people don't realize are achievable are you getting any type of guidance from the factory or are you just relying on your experiences and and what you think will work best in those scenarios a combination of, of both so you know I'll, I'll often whenever i'm in california for example i'll see the guys at alacoustics out there and we'll, we'll talk a lot we'll come up with with different ideas or i'll share what i've been trying to achieve with them they're very supportive in that sense but a lot of it really is looking at, at software, having a having an idea you think might work based on the science, but looking at software and then going, oh, this is worth trying in the field. Sometimes, you know, you, you try and implement something for a show and it's not as effective as you expect it to be. So you 
you get back to the drawing board and try something else. But that's that's one of the beauties of doing long tours like that is you become so familiar with the response of your system. You you know what you're gonna get when you make any change that when you do try something different, you can go, This is what this is what I expected to happen or this is what should have worked or immersely you go, No, this didn't work at all. Let's scratch this idea. Yeah, that sounds very familiar to me. I'm normally going back to the drawing board again and again. Uh, but enough uh, ripping on myself. Let's put a bow on this and, and call things to a close. Final question, what are you doing during the downtime right now? Are you keeping active or busy back home in New Zealand? How are you passing the time now that we're not uh, sitting on tour buses and working in stadiums and whatnot? We've actually got a um, our local arena down here has been transformed into a a food and and essentials distribution center for people in need uh, throughout the COVID crisis. So it's it's basically become a Monday to Friday uh, job for me going down there and and helping get these boxes of food and stuff packaged up for people that need it. And that's it's a good laugh. It's people from the industry, so it's only people that we know from gigs, uh, local crew, other audio guys, uh, some of the guys from Live Nation and stuff like that. So. It's a really good laugh, and it's, it feels good to do something that's uh, beneficial for people and keeps me busy. Prior to that, I was uh, I was I was losing my mind a little, being stuck inside for so long. Yeah, oh, I I feel your pain there, and and I totally understand. And that's part of the reason that I started the podcast was to keep in contact with people, meet new people like yourself, and then also try to give back a little bit either to people in our industry or um, people who may not be aware what goes into live production. But all that aside, I just want to say thanks again for being a guest today. I really appreciate your time. It was an honor to speak with you. I hope I get to see you on the road before too long. And until then, stay safe and healthy and uh, take care. No, it's been fun. Thank you. And that's a wrap on this episode of Mixmasters. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please be sure to subscribe and then tell a friend or maybe leave a review on Apple Podcasts. I'd certainly appreciate it. I produce Mixmasters on the Allen & Heath DLive system with Shure microphones and a little help from Apple's Logic Pro X and some Waves SoundGrid plugins. One more round of thanks to Merritt Goodwin for the music, and until next time, stay safe and healthy, and thanks again for listening.